Usually when I preach I like to work my way through whole books of the Bible and my preference has always been to preach from the letters, uh, the epistles and, and it'd be really tempting for me to always just stay in the letters because I find them really easy to preach from. But as disciples of Christ we, we need to have a balanced diet of God's word and so sometimes we find ourselves going through, through the Gospels. Sometimes we go back to various themes throughout the Old Testament. But I've actually very rarely preached from the book of Acts. I, I discovered that when, when I was trying to think, okay, well, what, what, what's the new series we're going to do? What, what am I going to preach on? I've realised I've actually preached very few sermons from the book of Acts. And the book of Acts, it's, it's a genre. That means it's a type of literature all of its own. Uh, some people, when they think of the book of Acts, they think that it's just a history book. And, and yes, it is history, but it's much more than just history. It's packed full of theology. It's packed full of stuff about God. It, it's packed full of what we can learn about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And in the Bible, the, the book of Acts is the only transition that we have between the Gospels and, and the letters. The Gospels are a record of what Jesus said and did right up until the time he, he rose from the dead and then ascended into heaven. Um, And then the letters are written to establish churches. And there's a big gap between between the Gospels and and its time when the letters were written. What happened between those times? What happened that this small group of disciples, about 120 in all, a group whose leader had left them and gone up into heaven, what happened that these few reluctant, cowering, uncertain, confused individuals from these guys... Churches had sprung up all known all throughout the known world. How did it come to this? What did God do? How did the disciples achieve it? What, what did the early church look like? How did they function? And the answers to all these questions we find in the book of Acts. And as we study this book, my prayer is that God would show us how we could have a similar effect on, on the world around us um, to what the disciples had on the world around them. So going from Acts chapter 1 verse 1, the book of Acts is the second volume of a two volume work, okay? It was written by Dr. Luke. So any guesses who Luke, what what other book Luke wrote? Any guesses? No surprise, no it's not a trick question. Luke, of course, yep. Okay, now Luke was a Gentile medical doctor. And in fact, I understand that Luke is the only non-Jewish writer of any of the Bible. And so that makes it unique for a start. And in both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, we can begin to appreciate that the analytical mind that Luke has and the scientific brain that he has, where he just um, records stuff that happens in such detail. And both the Gospel of Luke and the book that we know, now know as the Acts of the Apostles were written for the benefit by a blo- of a bloke by the name of Theophilus. That was his name. Now, all names have meaning, or well, most of them have meanings, you know that, don't you? And usually it, the name means very much what the person is. So, Michael means angelic. So, what, what a particularly appropriate name. Um, what does Roy mean? Roy means royalty. Regal or royalty? Yes. Very good. Thank you, King Roy. <laughs> now, 
the name Theophilus in, in the Greek can mean one of two things. It, it could mean God lover or loved by God. We, we don't know which one it is. And we have absolutely no idea who this bloke was. No idea at all who Theophilus was. But the, the Gospel of Luke, which is probably the most detailed of the Gospels, and, and the book of Acts was both written for his benefit. Um, now, there is speculation that both Luke and Acts were written to be used in Paul's defence when, when he was on trial in Rome. And there's some very good evidence for that in, in the Gospel of Luke and in, in the book of Acts itself. But we don't know that. that that's just speculation. And it's very interesting speculation, but because the Bible actually doesn't say why it was written, um, then we, it just remains speculation. Now, the Gospel of Luke, when it starts out, it starts off like this. Luke chapter 1, verse 1 says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just to those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And then the Gospel of Luke unfolds. And now, the second volume, the book of Acts, begins, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And then comes the book of Acts. And and it becomes very obvious that Jesus' activity in the world has not come to an end with his departure. right? Because in the Gospel of Luke, this is all of the stuff that he began to do and teach. And now now it it continues on in the book of Acts. All of the things that Jesus did continues through his apostles. Now... Luke doesn't give this book a title, but we had to give it a title so, so I could say to everybody, right, turn to, to Acts chapter 1, verse 1. We've got to call it something, haven't we? We've got to call it Acts. Um, the early church gave it the name the Acts of the Apostles, or just simply Acts. Now, really, I reckon a better name would have been Acts of, of God or Acts of the Holy Spirit, or better still, the Acts of the Lord Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit. Because this is what Jesus is continuing to do in the world. Okay. Today's reading, Acts chapter 1, introduces a fair bit of the content that we're going to encounter over the next few months. And I'm just going to highlight each of these with, with a heading. The first heading we've got is Jesus Lives. The book of the Acts catches picks up the story after the resurrection. After Jesus has been raised from the dead, he appeared to his disciples for a period of 40 days. And during that time, he taught them about the kingdom of God and he gave them commandments. And we're going to find that, unsurprisingly, the resurrection is a critical element to the message that the disciples are going to share. Because all the big news had happened, oh, this Jesus, he's, he's been crucified, he's dead, and so everybody's probably thinking, oh, well, that's the end. But the main message that the disciples are going to have to carry with them is, yeah, he was dead, but he's not anymore. And so Jesus lives is something that's going to come up right the way through Acts. The second heading I've given is Holy Spirit. 
We've already talked about that with the kids. Uh, The highlight of the book of Acts comes in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost and that's the chapter that most of us will most probably be most familiar with as we celebrate Pentecost or Whit Sunday as we celebrate the day that the Holy Spirit was given to the church. And right from the beginning of chapter 1, it's looking forward to this highlight. Jesus tells his disciples, no more than that, he, he commands them, he orders them, do not leave Jerusalem until you have received the Holy Spirit, until you've been baptised is the word he used. And, and I just love to be able to just jump straight into chapter 2 because it's just so exciting what, what happened at that time. Um, but we're going to have to wait till next week. The disciples had to wait for the Holy Spirit to come and, and we've got to wait until next week till we get to chapter 2. John baptised you with water. I'm going to baptise you with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, he said. The third heading is religious persecution. You know, even with Jesus dangling this tantalising promise of the Holy Spirit in front of them, even though he's been teaching them about the kingdom of God, the disciples are still fixated on the kingdom of Israel. And when he tells them about the Holy Spirit, the very first thing they can think of, oh, well, Lord, is that the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And I can just see this, like... This has been happening throughout the Gospels that they keep wanting to look to the physical whereas Jesus is trying to bring them to the kingdom of God. And he's telling them about the kingdom of God. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. Oh, and they keep coming back to the kingdom of Israel. And the disciples are going to learn a lot as we go through this book of Acts. And they did go first and foremost to the Jews but they were met with wholesale rejection by the Jewish religious establishment. And the Jewish religious leaders are going to continue to pursue these Christians and persecute them and beat them and kill them. But the disciples just continued to preach the good news to the Jews right up until the very last chapter of Acts. And in the very last chapter of Acts, chapter 28, verse 25, I think it was Paul that says this, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you'll indeed hear but never understand. You'll indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they've closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal him. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And we see, we're going to see unfolding throughout this, this book of Acts that Christians going in and, and diligently, always going first to the temple, always sharing straight away to God's chosen people, to the Jews, and continually getting run out of town, continually getting beaten and stoned, and whipped and persecuted. And then we're going to find, as we go through, that God opening up the gospel gospel further and wider afield and into the 
the Gentiles. And you'll remember from a couple of months ago, the Gentiles are the non-Jews, right? So most of us here, unless, unless you're a Jew, uh, most of us are Gentiles. And so we'll find that the gospel is open for all people in the world, not just God's chosen. The fourth heading is the great compulsion. And I talked about that a little bit with the kids with those magnets. Now we've probably all heard of the Great Commission. Put your hand up if you've heard of the Great Commission. Yep, most of you. Great Commission, we know that from from Matthew chapter 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now we preachers, we pull that one out a lot. We love it. Um, One of the most difficult tasks for a preacher to do is to get the flock active and involved in ministry. And right there at the end of of Matthew, there's a godsend for us. It's a commandment that we can just read. It's an imperative. You must be doing it. Go, make disciples, do stuff. Quick, look busy. Jesus is coming. And, And I've been in a lot of churches over a lot of years of my life. I've heard a lot of great stirring messages given on the Great Commission. And the preachers nailed it. And, and the congregation get up and they walk out there. Great sermon, Pastor. Great sermon. Very passionate. Amazing. And they go home completely unchanged. Their week is the same as the week before. And then next week they go to church exactly the same as they always have. Exactly the same. You see, that's because the Great Commission... It's a commandment that for us usually becomes the great omission. We just omit that bit. We just forget about it. And for most of us, the Great Commission remains the great omission until it becomes for us the great compulsion. I want you to understand the difference here. Here in Acts, it's not given as a commandment It's simply written as a statement of fact. Verse 8 said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There's no commandment there. It's just a statement of fact. What he's saying is when the Holy Spirit comes upon God's people in power, with the Spirit comes a great compulsion, a compulsion to be his witnesses. Sometimes people say to me, oh, Michael, the the Spirit was really moving in church today. And usually they'll be talking about and and describing a particularly wonderful feeling that they felt as the music played and and they felt themselves to be in a wonderful place with God. The Spirit is moving, they will say. Well, I want to tell you something. When the Holy Spirit moves, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us in power, the people of our church will be compelled to be witnesses for him. And that's not just in church where it's all very comfortable with one another. That's out in the world. It's out in the community. That's out, out with our friends that we thought, oh, they'd have no interest in God at all. But we, we just all of a sudden feel compelled 
that we've just got to share our faith, that we've just, we've, we've just got to tell them that, about this risen Lord Jesus Christ who, who we have come to discover is real. A sure sign that the Holy Spirit is moving in a church is when those disciples of Christ are compelled to share the good news out into the world when we just cannot bottle it up inside any longer and it's just got to come out. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will come upon this little church in power. I pray that the Lord would compel us that you and I would be so filled with God's Holy Spirit that we cannot just keep it inside. That, that, we, that we won't be reluctant witnesses, we'd just be automatic witnesses. Just telling everybody. And we're going to find that when the Holy Spirit is given, as we read through this book of Acts, witness is increased. The word of God is increased. And we're going to find a bit of a pattern here. The word grew and the church grew. The word grew and the church grew. The word grew and the church grew. And so the disciples would be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That means that they're going to start witnessing right where they were. They would then radiate out into Judea. That was the country areas. They would then find themselves preaching to their neighbouring regions, they're going to be preaching to people that they didn't even like. They're going to be talking to the Samaritans and telling them. Now the Samaritans, they're a mixed race that years ago they'd sort of separated off from Israel and gotten caught up in idolatry. And so Israel started actually hating the Samaritans. And then finally, they're going to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And we're going to see that pattern unfolding right throughout the book of Acts. They started in the capital of Jerusalem, then they went into the country areas, then they went into the the Samaritan areas, and then they go out into all of the known world. Now, I believe this is a challenge for us. It's a challenge for us today. It's a challenge for us every day. Mission begins in our own backyard. And then it extends out into the surrounding districts. Now that's the whole premise upon which Bush Disciples began. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, your mission does not begin overseas. It may continue overseas if that's where God has called you. But your mission does not begin in a foreign land. Your mission, the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ, begins right here in your hometown. Amongst your neighbours. Now, I know there's a bunch of you ready to quote to me, uh, but Michael, doesn't the Bible say a prophet's never welcome in his hometown? Didn't, didn't Jesus say that? Didn't that happen to Jesus when he went to Nazareth? Well, I'm going to have to just say to you, well, that didn't stop Jesus from going to Nazareth. Jesus did go to Nazareth. Jesus did heal people at Nazareth. Jesus did preach the word of God at Nazareth. He just wasn't accepted as well as what he was in other places. They took offence at him. So he wasn't as able to, to do as good as stuff there. But that didn't stop him from going to Nazareth. There's a modern phenomenon, and I I hope there's nobody here that takes offence at this, but I I call it mission tourism, where we get it into our heads, I've got to go on a trip overseas, and and that for me will be mission. And and so we, we head off for one or two weeks and we get involved in ministry while we're away, 
And then we come home thinking we've done our mission for the year or maybe we've done our mission for the decade. Well, yes, that is mission and very often God leads people to go on an overseas mission trip. But that is not where your mission begins and is certainly not where your mission ends. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we are compelled to be his witnesses wherever we are. And where are we most of the time? We're compelled to be his witnesses here, there and everywhere. Which brings me to the fifth heading. I've been using the word witness a lot and that's going to be our next heading. The word witness in the Greek is is actually the word martyria from which we get our word martyr. Um, And straight away you can sort of start to guess that being a witness is something that's going to cost us. And right throughout the book of Acts we're going to find that these disciples of Jesus Christ being witnesses, telling people about Jesus wherever they went, witnessing to the good news of Jesus Christ even under the threat of death and in fact many of them are killed. But the great compulsion that they have inside of them, the Holy Spirit, drives them to continue to be witnesses even when they are persecuted. Why? Why are they so keen to be his witnesses? Well, they are compelled by the Holy Spirit. I've already said that. But also, they, have, they had an expectation of the imminent return of Jesus and that set the whole tone for their ministry. After Jesus ascends into heaven, a couple of big old angels appear to the disciples and they, they say something along the lines of, what are you lot doing standing here looking up into the sky? Right? He's coming back again, but what are you still doing here? And the compulsion that we have to share our faith is made all that much stronger when we believe and when we expect the return of Jesus. Now you be honest with yourself right now. If Jesus decides to come back about 11 o'clock Monday morning, are you going to be totally surprised? And Oh, wow. Or or are you living day by day thinking, whoa, Jesus could come today. That would be great. How much do you think it, it, it alters what we do when we live the ex, with the expectation that Jesus is returning? Now, it's turned out to be a long time. Now, that shouldn't actually be a surprise because there's other Bible passages, with, particularly where Jesus is giving some parables about his return. And if you actually look at each of them, it all turned, to be, turned out to be a lot. He was a long time coming. But guess what? It's already been a long time. It may be a short time till Jesus comes down. The sixth word I have is prayer. Before the Holy Spirit came upon them, these early Christians devoted themselves in one accord to prayer. Now I want you to take notice of that in one accord. That means that, that they're on the same page. They were agreed about what they were praying about. They, they knew, okay, this is what God has led us to pray. And they would gather together and they would pray for that thing. 
And if we desire to be a community who experience the power of the Holy Spirit, we also need to be a community who pray. And not just for whatever comes off the top of our head. We need to agree. You know, you know that, that means we need to talk to each other about, oh wow, I actually think God's leading us to pray for such and such. And we talk to each other and go, you know, I've been thinking that for a while too. And then all of a sudden these couple of sparks ignite something which is called prayer in one accord. Where we get together and we, we say, well, as a community, we believe that this is what God wants us to be praying for. And we commit ourselves to prayer. The final heading that I've got for today is church. Judas had to be replaced. Uh, the scriptures said that Judas was going to be replaced and so they did replace him and and to be affected, they, they needed to have somebody who'd been with Jesus right throughout his whole ministry. And this person also had to be somebody who had witnessed the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody who could be an effective witness and say, yep, I've seen this. And this is the first recorded church meeting that we have. Right? They prayed about it and, and then they brought it together to the church. And there was about 120 believers all together. And the church were the ones who narrowed it down to two. Two candidates, uh, Justice and Matthias. And the next part, then all of a sudden, seems to get a bit bizarre. They cast lots. It's sort of like having a bit of a raffle. We'll have a lucky door seat, perhaps, and that'll be our next next minister. Um, Is that how we choose ministers? They put forward two names, and then they cast lots. Now, that's, that's a very interesting way to discern the will of God, isn't it? And does that mean that that's the way that we should make decisions here? We should flip a coin. So, oh, well, are we going to go to Begonia today or are we going to go and, go and preach to um, Deer and Bandy? Let's flip a coin and see. Or does it mean, well, oh, we could get a dice. We could have six options all at one time. Okay, God, these are going to be the six options. We'll roll the dice and you tell us, what, is that what the way we should be conducting business? Anybody think we should? Why did they do it? Well, the reason they cast lots was to take the decision out of man's hands and to put it into God's hands. Now, casting lots is actually a biblical thing. Back in the Old Testament, um, the high priest used to cast lots. He had two stones, a black one and a white one, called the the Ummon and the Thummon. And I don't know how they're supposed to be pronounced, but you can take that or correct it if you like. And they used to put them into a bag and and pray that God would reveal his will and they'd draw out one of the stones and and that would be the decision that God had made. Now, why don't we still do that today? That would take a lot of the guesswork out of it, wouldn't it? If if we were just flipping a coin of rolling the dice. Why don't we do it today? I'll tell you why. Because this is Acts chapter 1 and next week is Acts chapter 2. This week, we're reading about the church before the Holy Spirit came upon them. Next week, we'll be reading about the church after the Holy Spirit has come come upon them. And guess what? This is the very last time that lots were cast in the Bible as a means for determining the will of God. How's that? That's pretty simple, isn't it? 
The Holy Spirit living inside of us reveals to us the will of God. And so we don't roll the dice or flip a coin to know, whether, to know what God wants. We don't need to. The Holy Spirit living inside of us lets us know that. The, the intimate relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father reveals His will to us. You know, um, I've only ever cast lots once and my wife thought I was entirely crazy when I did it. Um, I, I was brought up a farmer. I was always going to be a farmer. My, my whole, everything that I'd decided to do, I was going to be a farmer. Anyway, over a short period of time, Mum and Dad decided to sell the farm and, and I, I, I all of a sudden realised that there was absolutely no way I could afford to buy my own farm. And, but... And I really knew, okay, God was taking this away. I knew it. But I wasn't really ready to accept that. And so I thought, I, I come up with this scheme. I thought, maybe God wants me to win the gold lotto. And then I could buy a farm. And like, I'd never, ever bought a ticket in, in gold lotto or, or anything like that. But, but trying to justify it in my head, you know. But, but what if God wants me to? What if he does? Maybe I'll just go and buy that ticket. And then I thought, I'd feel wrong doing that. Oh, what about if I just roll the dice? If I roll the dice three times in a row and and the six comes up three times in a row, I'll know then that God's told me to, to go and buy a gold lotto ticket. So I rolled the dice and I got a one. See, the Holy Spirit had already been speaking to me. The Holy Spirit had already revealed to me that it wasn't right. That, okay, God was in this. I can tell you now, if I was still on the farm at Gundawindi, I wouldn't be here preaching to you today. I mean, I'd still be a Christian, I'm sure. I'd probably still be, be active, well, I would still be active in the local church. But God had something different in mind. And I knew that. But you know how our mind sometimes we try and, yeah. So, right through the book of Acts, we're going to see the Holy Spirit revealing to the disciples the will of God. Casting lots is finished. And we're also going to see the place of the church in that. Now, a lot of people today see the church as a bad thing. Uh, Maybe it's got something to do with our individualistic culture our individualistic view of Christianity. But in the book of Acts, we're going to see that those early Christians felt an absolute necessity to be together. They knew that whenever they, whenever they came into a place, they weren't just forming converts, they were forming churches. They were getting people to come together, to meet together, so that they could continue to pray together in one accord. And so that they could gather together to worship and pray and hear the word of God and be taught. And that was the place of the church. Anyway, I reckon we've gone far enough. It's been a pretty big um, story today because it's been an introduction to, to the book of Acts but it's also we've gone right through and taken little bits out of the whole of the first chapter. But I just want you to remember... 
the highlight, the highlight of Acts is the coming of the Holy Spirit. I want you to look forward to that next week as we learn more about how the Holy Spirit can come upon us in power. Any questions? I've confused everybody beyond speech. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. And Lord, we want to thank you for for this book of Acts that we can study and, and how it records the way that you led these disciples um, into your will. And Lord, we pray that as we go through this book of Acts that you would reveal your will to us. Lord, as we discover how the Holy Spirit came upon the church in power, Lord, we pray that this same power of your Spirit would be imparted to us today. Lord, as we read about how they were compelled to go to be witnesses to the, in the regions around them and their hometowns and, and to the ends of the earth, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would compel us in the same way today. Lord, as we see that they continued on in this mission in spite of all the persecutions, Lord, we pray for your strength that we also, when we face persecutions, would continue on in this compulsion that we have by your Spirit. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us to pray as your church in one accord. Pray this in Jesus' name.